Yeah, here. We're fine. Hello, friends. Welcome to Get in the Garage. I am Mike, here with Luke and Jeffrey via the internet. What's up, guys? Oh, The World world Wide Web. I'm here. The World Wide Web. The interwebs. Worldwide exclusive. Thanks, Al Gore. Uh, Today, we're going to be getting on up uh, and getting into some of James Brown as uh, the second episode of our of the four in celebration of Black History Month. Uh, last week was Stacks. This week we're moving on to another. I mean, Jeff, you texted me what, like, oh, last week I think, early last week, and you're just like, I, I'm pretty sure, with the exception of who did you say, Aretha Franklin and Ray and, Charles, and Ray Charles, James Brown may be like what one of the top most influential, like, soul R and B artists. Oh, I think. I think he, like, I think those three might be the most influential, like, pop musicians, uh, period. Oh, yeah. I, definitely. I, uh, definitely agree. I've listened to a ton of Ray Charles this week and a ton of James Brown, and just the, it, I'm just, I'm so excited to talk about James Brown. It's past the peace. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Peace. So, what we thought we would do is, is we would go down list, like, basically our own personal list of, um, giving, you guys, our favorite. Listen, man, this James is James Brown. Brown. If we think it out too much, we're doing it wrong. He didn't even think about his lyrics uh, before he started, went to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to take it to the bridge. I'm going to take it to the bridge. I'm gonna take it to the bridge. Maceo. He would, he would, he would um, say a line. He'd have like two measures to think like, what rhymes with that word I just said? And then he would just yeah. say that. <laughs> I'm gonna walk to the ridge before we really take it to the bridge. We really start too. Um, I love how James Brown was like a lyric jacker of all time too. Oh yeah, like he, he like the shake your money maker in uh, uh, Sex Machine is so good. I know that has to be on one of your guys' list. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 For me, I was gonna I, like kicking off the list. I was just gonna start hit, with you, straight the favorite favorite James Brown song of all time. Yeah. For me, oh, of all time. If you all right, yeah. gun to well, your head, me, you have three minutes to play a James Brown song for someone. Get up. I feel like a sex machine featuring the original JBs off of the 1970 album Sex Machine. I mean, it's so good. It, 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 he does that cool thing. I mean, we were talking about it where it's the back and forth, the call and answer. Get up, get on up. And then he does that thing where he'll just cut. In other words, he doesn't keep he doesn't always keep the measures and all that stuff even. Right. He'll decide to jump he'll decide to jump into a different part of the song like early or late or he'll let you know what I mean? It's it's so all the movement of the song doesn't really follow this sort of concrete pattern. It's whatever James Brown decides he wants you to play, when he wants you to play it. So it's all feel. It's all that. I mean, it's it's they're one of the best bands and probably one of the most abused bands where the where any member of any of like the james brown band lineups you know but you you know it's it, it's it's up there man i think it rivals with like like bb king's band or like albert king's band you're talking about these bands that like were always held to a very very high standard and it really shows in the music and i think especially with this too because 
a, a shoulder raise or an elbow or a hand or like anything that James Brown physically did had significance and it meant something. It was like when you watch baseball and they're doing sign language to each other. You know what I mean? Like it's really like that. Um, this version you've picked out is uh, like the ten and a half minute long one. Have you sat through the whole ten and a half minutes? Yeah, man. Have I sat through it? Yes, I have. Of course, I have. And you know what? It gave me anxiety the entire time. No, um, it does. Luke will re- it does a little bit though, because I mean, it, it can't. It's what I love about like this song is like it plays like jazz to me because it's so inner. It's got like this interlocking groove that just like the rhythm keeps playing and then things move yeah. in and out of it. Um, also, this has the um, uh, the solo on it, like the jazz like horn. The right is that uh, Sex Machine? No, Sex Machine has. Uh, um, uh, Sex Machine is piano. James Brown piano. Yeah. Blues piano. You might be thinking of super bad. Super bad is the one with the crazy. That's what I'm thinking of. But um, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. it's got that great piano hook in it too of James Brown playing it. It's oh my god, great piano. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's got that hypnotic thing that goes along with it that I really like. Yeah, I found that this era specifically of James Brown, what he really was able to perfect was kind of like the drone, right? Like it's just his. Every song, especially these long form songs, like with the original JBs, like in 1970, 71, 69, and flowing around that 70 mark, man, where it's all the original JBs, like his music just has this pulse to it, you know? And it's also great because he's like, he'll, he's like calling back. He's like, can I take it to the bridge? And they're like, yeah, can I take it to the bridge? Yeah. Can I take it to the bridge in Cincinnati, Ohio? Yeah. Can I take it to the bridge in Macon, Georgia? Yeah. Can I take it to the bridge in LA and Los Angeles, California? Yeah. So it's like, Oh, you like that version more than the... I like the single version better, personally. I love, uh, with the call and response, though, I love how you can hear Bootsy and Catfish. Like, you hear Bootsy's high voice, like, yeah! Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's so young. It's it's Bootsy. He's, like, like, 19 years old on that track. Yeah, the the one part about... Because I just think it's it's in a slightly different key and, like, playing than the single one. Because there's a long single where it's parts one, two, and three that's out there that's also nine and a half minutes long. But the one you're talking about is cool because um, near the end, they had a very inexperienced horn section at the time, and they're doing all the yes with the band. And like at minute nine, he's like, Come on, chicken, I can't hear you. And he's <laughs> chicken, yeah. chicken Gunnels was what is it, one of the trumpet players. And he's like, What? You too good, too good for this chicken? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. The, the James Brown, like I watched them play um, uh, Sex Machine. Uh, it was, like, live in Europe when they went over there, and I was watching mm. it on YouTube, and, like, their faces are so frightened, and I'm watching them knowing how, like, cruel <laughs> of a band leader he is, and I'm, like, my palms are getting sweaty. I'm like, don't <laughs> don't mess up, guys. Don't, like, I'm getting anxious no. for them. I mean, that's kind of why, like, every single band ended up just Ooh. having a, a certain group or a certain number of people who all just became, like, mutineers. They were like, no, we're gonna, we're taking over the ship. And every time James Brown would call their bluff and then basically just fire them. Or in the case of like from the original band to going into transitioning into the JBs, not even saying anything and just basically flying out the Collins brothers and their band to basically be the new James Brown band. And he was just like, yeah, play the music. And they're like, we don't know the music. He's just like, nah, just feel it. You'll be fine. And they're like, what? And he's like, all right, let's go. And then they like basically... You know, trial well, by that, fire. You know, if you're talking like, 1972, that's James Brown. He's 36, 37, and he's already been doing it for 12, 13 years. 
And yeah, yeah, these are guys who are only 19, 20, 21. I mean, Phelps was like uh, Catfish Collins was like eight years older than Bootsy. So he was like mid 20s. But um, yeah, but Bootsy was young. Right, man. He was 19 at the time. And you can hear that it's at that time to 1970. You're saying this is James Brown deep into his funk period. So the whole these aren't really songs so much as they are just those two measure grooves that go over and over and hypnotic yeah. and you just dance and you just watch him. And he's just on stage, like wiggling his feet and just yelling out directions and like, Ooh, ah, I feel good. And like just random words. <laughs> and yeah. you know. Proto hip hop, proto hip hop. Oh right? yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, he even asked like, like I'm going to rap for right. you here. Yeah. Like, like it, I'm going to rap here a minute. That's what I definitely get in this period. And it's like all about like the, on that one downbeat. That's like, it's crazy yeah. on the one. Everything's about the one. It's, yeah. I love It's so, ugh, I love his hard funk. Yeah. And I'd like the lyrics too of the song are like, obviously overtly like hypersexual. And they're only like three lyrics to the whole song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Along with, with the ripoff of shake your money maker from Elmore James at the, at the mm. end. Um, also, too, Bobby Bird doing the uh, call and response right. with James Brown. He's like a holdover from James Brown's original band when they were. Bobby Brown was like the first lead singer of the of the Flames back in the day. So, like, I think that's really cool that they're like on that moment of like a high point for them. Yeah, Bobby mm. Bird was like, it was like how Mike described where you'd have these guys who would play with him for a long time and then they'd just be like, man, fuck this guy. I can't take this bullshit. <laughs> yeah, but like, then they would come back because they're like, there's nothing better than playing with the best band in the world. And like Bobby Bird was with him from 55 with the Famous Flames up until about 73 and then he left. But then he came back in the mid 80s because, you know, it's just like a lot a of those players, they would leave for two years but then come back and a drummer wouldn't play with him for like eight years but then be like would hit hop on a couple singles in the mid seventies and stuff. And that I like I like that too, like to talk about Bobby Bird, like James Brown stole his band. Like that's one of like the funniest <laughs> things. And then he was just like, oh, I guess I'll yeah. I guess I'll stay in the band for another like twenty years. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. And since since yeah. we're not gonna talk about we're going to talk about history only to like cite things as we talk about what we like about the music, but you know, it, it's not, obviously it's not a documentary, but the get on up movie starring Chadwick Boseman is definitely worth checking out. Um, if you want to know yeah. more about the James Brown life story and all that, like it is, you know, it's not to the, it's not exactly correct, but 95% of it is what happened and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think you fall victim with all those biopics right. of like artists and stuff. There's always like, you know, liberties taken by the directors and stuff but anyway so yeah so that's my number one probably like my number one my number one get on yeah. up yes so cool how about you jeff what's your what's oh your, my uh, number one is like number one you know it's it's the go-to i guess from someone who had never heard james brown would choose this one but i've listened to james brown so much i'm still choosing it because i think his best song is i got you i feel good um, oh, I thought you were going to go living in America. No, that's that just made, <laughs> missed the cut. Um, but I got you is just like it's like what I say with Ray Charles. It's it's just an iconic song. It's like his go to song. It's probably the first James Brown song I ever heard. It starts with him just screaming, <laughs> and it just continues. The whole rest of the song is so tight. It's like four sax players playing. They're like. Dah, 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 dah behind it's uh jimmy nolan on 
guitar doing these spanky chords like on the two and four that just cut through and the band gives it space so you can hear it. Um, something, my favorite part of this song, besides the ending, which is just like so great, this lurch down ending where it does the horn hits all together and then he screams mm-hmm. and then the band hits real hard. I love the break before the bridge um, and the drummer on this track was Melvin Parker and he was the younger brother of Maceo Parker, the sax player on the song. And like we talked about in the previous episode, the whole concept of like brothers and like how the Bee Gees sing together and how it doesn't sound like anything else because they've just sung their whole life. That break where it's just the drums and the sax go dun, 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 dun. It's just the two brothers playing. And it's, I mean, I think it's like the best four measures that's ever been recorded. Like it's so, so fucking good. And that's just what it sounds like when two guys have been playing together since they were six years old. And I mean, I love after the hook where he says, I feel good. Those syncopated things, the whole band, like this song is just, it's nasty, man. I, fully agree with jeff like once he said the horn line i could not stop moving like <laughs> that, that and i put that song on today too like i it's just like the you're right the horn line and that is so good and i did not realize that those two were brothers and like, that's such like a cool thing to like point out that they have like that interlocking like brotherly groove that can't get any tighter on that tune um i have a really fun story about that tune and how it's very like how difficult it is, but James Brown makes it sound so good. We tried to play that song at Pep Band. And right. on, oh. on on the break before the bridge, the bop, 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 or break after the bridge, coming back yeah. in, bop, you know, it, uh, to come back in, nobody could get back on the one because it like it's so hard to get a, you know, a room of almost 100 people to come <laughs> yeah. in on a one, like as tight as James Brown would. Yeah. And then, I, you know, it took us to be like, we're not that good. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, we know. It, it just speaks to uh, how great that song is. Well, Luke, being a drummer, right? I mean, we're talking about, I mean, all three of us obviously being musicians, but Luke being predominantly a drummer, we all dabble in the percussive oh. arts. But, um, but um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the one, right? So let's just, I think we should take a minute just to discuss the one, because the one is something that, like, is, ve- I think, very synonymous with James Brown. And then afterwards with Bootsy Collins, Bootsy Collins always talks about the one, but he always refer- references the one as sort of being like, well, this is what James Brown taught me about the right. one, you know? So, so like later we were talking about how hard funk gets more hypnotic, yeah. but here in like the... Uh, this is 65. Yeah, this yep. is like right in the middle of like James Brown's ascendance and like his first real awesome high point. And I think this was a number one crossover hit on the pop uh, pops too. I don't know if it made number one on the, but definitely in the R&B. But anyway, so we're getting to like on the one, like in the, like Jeff was saying, like the syncopated breaks, the bump, 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 one, that it's all about getting in and accenting on the one and off the one and stuff like that um, and leaving space. Um, but yeah, it's really, his drummers are, are really like human metronomes. His bands are, <laughs> rhythm section is a human metronome. Uh, and like no other band at this point was tighter. And nobody was really accenting like that hard on dance for dance groove purposes. And he was starting to make music just for dancing, which was like kind of an old thing that people had done with jazz. But it was in a whole new kind of rhythm and blues aspect. So the emphasis on the one was really important as in jazz, it would have been like a different kind of accents and stuff, but maybe, you know, more on the one at that point too. 
but yeah so that's yeah and a lot of a lot of his music it would be like the band would hit the one and then the horns would accent off it so like if you think a song like cold sweat where it goes boom one right or i got you boom one you know like they're all these yeah interlocking things that come down hard right right also to speak earlier i think i can't remember if it was jeff or luke what you said uh but chart positionings uh u.s billboard hot 100 it peaked at number three uh u.s billboard rhythm and blues singles charted at number one and uk singles charted at number 29 that was in the year 1965 and then it charted in number on number 49 in 1992 in belgium for so randomly, randomly, but I think it was on the first comp- uh, yeah. compilation of Jock Jams. So that might have been what what got them over in. <laughs> it, it's in parentheses. It says Ultra Top Fifty. Oh, whatever. Uh, is an organization which generates and publishes the official record charts in Belgium. Ultra Top is a nonprofit organization. Blah blah blah. Yeah. What I if there's know. a world it's... where where Belgium had never heard James Brown music until the nineties? <laughs> I mean, that's white country, dude. That's they never. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but yeah, there's a lot. There's some of that that you see a lot, where like different countries get music way later. But anyway, so like, carrying on. I really do enjoy this song so much, though, because like uh, obviously, too, like to even speak to the lyric, I feel good. Like so much was going bad in the country at that moment for uh, James Brown, but he was like trying to, you know, I feel good, and he was dancing and like showing himself in like a, a you know sophisticated light in his band was like highly dressed and that was like his first single i think that really crossed over and it's such a great statement about what james brown does because it has that great original james brown period r&b hook where it's more like a song structure still it's got a great horn line Mm -hmm. but then it also has that great like almost to his later funk period bridge so it kind of bridges both of the great um high ascensions of james brown's career and i think it mixes it like right in the middle of it and um, it's the beginning of his great horn player, Maceo, in there too, right? And that's just a, you know, a great, great classic song. So I highly agree. And something right. I like I, about yeah. this song is like, it's so, it sounds so <clears throat> youthful and it's so full of energy. And like, you would think that this came out early in his career, but like he had already been doing stuff for a decade. He was, thir- he was 32 years old when he made that song. Like he had done his live of the Apollo three years earlier. He had had his, couple you know five to ten big songs with the famous flames but like he didn't become a superstar until his 30s and like he continued to have number one hits up until his late 40s and early 50s but he was definitely like a late bloomer as far as like mainstream popularity went Mm, absolutely but that could have also just been you know a black artist in america and at the time you know you were hot on the r&b charts but you didn't have that crossover success because you were black and that's was yeah. really what was happening to James Brown because he has so many R and B number ones. Right. And then, like I think he has um and I, I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think he has the most appearances on the uh on the Billboard album chart of any artist because he mm. released so many great and so many singles. Yeah. Um What's you your wanna... favorite James Brown song, Luke? All time, I'm gonna have to go and this was more for personal reasons. Uh there was a time uh from Live at the Apollo Volume Two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really love this because like 
before this song, I don't think I really understood James Brown fully. Like, I had listened to a lot of James Brown, like, the all the hits and stuff, but, like, it didn't, like, really hit me. And then I put on side two of Live at the Apollo Volume 2, and it has the, the medley of uh, There Was a Time into Cold Sweat, and um, there's a jam in the middle of it. It's really long. It's, like, if you listen to the whole thing, it's, like, 20 minutes long, but There Was a Time is my favorite because it shows that really hypnotic um, <laughs> feel. And it's like the first emergence of James Brown doing like, like of funk music like that's ever existed. And he's like doing it live on stage and it's like happening in the moment. Um, if you listen to the single of that song too, it's from that performance. They just chop it up. Um, and I really love the hypnotic lines that sound like um, the Miles Davis so what horns like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but they're going da, 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 da. and then the background's going da. It's like kind of like that. It's got that like Miles Davis feel to me, uh, but um, at the same time, the lyrics are just James Brown telling you about all the dances he can do in like a rhymey, awesome way. <laughs> um, like the place where I used to stay, the name of the place is Augusta, GA. Um, you know, uh, stuff like that, or like sometimes a clown, like but you never see me, uh, or you ain't seen nothing yet, so you see me do the James Brown. Um, I just love the style and the flash and the band hits so hot after he like calls out like the, the, the punchline of the, um, the lyric, the band just goes like pop, pop, pop. And it's like Mike said, it's uneven at times and like not the same length every time. It just cuts the band down. They like start playing like really quietly and like the sweet ass horns come back in. I really love it. Yeah. It's it's what made me fall in love with James Brown. And also, I can't help but dance every time. Yeah, I think one thing that we were talking about, too, Jeff and I at least, was, like, sometimes you hear, especially, like, these live, these live cuts, man, and you're like, how has this guy not completely just shredded his vocal cords to absolutely <laughs> nothing? You know what I mean? Because he gives you these, like, these real like guttural sort of like primal screams, you know, but then he can, then he can go on and sing like so tenderly and so like delicately too. And it's just like, honestly, man, like it's, it's maybe it's a stretch to say it, but it's kind of like when you hear like really, really effective and good, like heavy metal vocalists now where they can give you this sort of crazy guttural scream, but in like the same line can give you this, beautiful like almost like angelic kind of voice you know like james brown was doing that shit way back when you know like way before anything like that happened but that's i i love that quality in yeah i was voice. thinking about it since we talked about that and i think the key that he was able to have so much uh stamina on stage was because there are only a few songs where he actually like sings the whole time like most of these songs it's like he yelps right. out something but then he has like six seconds to gulp and breathe and stuff before he yelps out something else so it's not like he's like continuously hitting things hard, hard, hard. He's right, he's able right. to like take a lot of rest time. So it's almost like, in a way, maybe it's even easier to do that because it's like vocal warm up type of style, like just doing these like shrieks, but then nothing for six seconds, and then shrieking again. Yeah, I never thought of it in that way. Yeah, because I can only think there. of like yeah. four songs off the top of my head where he like sings like how a singer sings the entire song. Right, and, and to the point that that Jeff is making too like this song there was a time Mm -hmm. like what he's doing at the Apollo too he's literally creating a new form of music that has not been made yet that might be hard to understand 
and so he's telling of like what to do with it but he's so he's telling you that like this is a dance song mm-hmm. these are the dance moves that you can do to it and this is how i i'm going to show you how to do the dance you know what i mean mm-hmm. and like i love that too because like before you create funk music out of thin air you got to have some kind of reference point to it so he's like Remember when we used to do the funky alligator, the mashed potato? Like, you can mash potato this. It's just got a brand new groove on it. Like, and I, like, that's what I really love about it. He, like, it's the, like, the old school, like, dances into, like, a new era of funk. And it, like, you know, shows that, like, he doesn't need to be singing the whole time. While you're talking about dancing, uh, I mean, as far as big stars, is James Brown the best dancing big star of all time? Or more interest, most interesting? I think everybody robs from mm-hmm. him. Like, okay, so I think James Brown's like the archetype. Mm-hmm. Everybody like robs, like it's Michael Jackson doing the dance moves, Mick Jagger doing everything else. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like that kind of thing. I think he's, I don't think anybody could beat him. But those he like, so those good. like crazy little like swivel foot moves he makes while he just like moves his shoulders. That dance move, yeah, that one he does. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He does it on the TTI. TMI show it was like a movie back in the 60s where he upped the stones in it mm. but um he like balances on one foot and like right, shim- right. that's what I mean yeah. shimmy shimmy yeah. shakes across the whole stage on one foot <laughs> right. and you're just like it's like the moonwalk before the moonwalk right just as impressive or just or just split I, and yeah. then up and then split and then up and then split it's like crazy I feel like he definitely took kind of like he took a lot of that little Richard vibe yeah. man which was like that like freaky kind of like, you know, but little Richard was tied to his piano mm. the whole time. Right. Whereas with James Brown, he could freely move around the stage. So he took that. I definitely think he took that. I, and there's a major, major mm. contribution to I think he, sort of the front man dancer like, thing. Like dances up to that point were like kind of like square too. You know what I mean? Like people were doing yeah. this again and like swing dance wasn't popular anymore. Like that was like big band era. Mm-hmm. I think James Brown ushered in like the pop stars that dance mm-hmm. era like what pop star doesn't dance and isn't reminiscent of james brown and the backup singers yeah. like doing the moves like it's all like that and the the style of dancing that james brown is doing that's you know what i mean yeah. they still do it to this day like all the moves he does you know what i mean they're classic yeah. pop or like draw you know like like falling on his knees and pulling the mic stand down with him and stuff and like yes. yeah it's just oh. iconic and okay so like but now that we're talking about the stage show <laughs> yeah, please you guys want to talk about the cape performance uh, r.i.p yes that oh, um it's, i don't i do you remember his danny name? ray i think is his name yeah but if that's di- i think he died last week danny ray the cape man yeah danny ray yeah, who is yeah. also James Brown's hype man, but like they for, do this for like forty five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the one who's just like Mister Dynamite, the star of the show. <laughs> yeah. Mister, right? Mister, like, please, 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 the hardest working man in show yeah. business. You man in show business, soul brother yeah. number one, <laughs> the million seller, <laughs> the <Godfather> soul. <laughs> but um, he, yeah, so they would do this James Brown's hit, please, 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 yeah. which is an amazing song. Yeah. But um, he would like. James Brown would like get down to the crowd and then the guy would like drape the cape over him. He'd be crying like, please, please, please don't leave me. And he's, like hobbling <laughs> on stage. And then the drums would go like, bop, hey, bop, run bop. back to the mic. <laughs> so and, start, and start screaming like, please, 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 please. And he dropped to his knees again in, in the TMI show or whatever it's called, that movie. 
if you just type in like yeah. TMI show, uh, you can watch the whole key performance. <laughs> he does it like six yeah. or seven times. And it's so effective. Like Danny Ray runs after him. Like he's like his attending nurse. Like we have to get to a, ho- to a hospital. <laughs> and he's like trying to pull him off the stage. And James Brown is like fighting him off. And he's screaming to the mic. It's so crazy. It's so good. <laughs> It's it's so like passionately yeah, effective so though, and like the backup singers are perfectly yeah. on key, going like oh, <laughs> and it's so like hits so hard, you're just like oh my god, like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, it's so yeah, effective. Yeah. Like the stage show was like no other. Yeah. Um, speaking of like stage shows too, like live the first live at the Apollo, like you get to see like what an actual old school like. 1950s i know that was recorded in the 60s but like the holdover band what that would have sounded like yeah. back in the day uh that just that historic recording of, like you get the old school intro to like we were just talking about yeah. the screaming and stuff it's it's so classic and it's like that record for me is such a treat to hear like as a historic piece yeah because they're doing like that mm-hmm. do, not doo-wop but like that slower soul music of james brown and the famous flames from the late 50s Cause it's 62 now, but like, if you listen to it, every, every song is sped up so much because now they have like that live energy. So like, they're like da, 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 in, into the songs, like, Whoa, this is going to be breakneck speed. Yeah. Like you hear the, the original, girls screaming and stuff. The original tempo of think is right. Right. It's like a pump right, song. Right. And it's got that shuffle beat, uh-huh. but the shuffle beat is going so fast and hypnotic mm. that like it, it <laughs> that blows my mind. That the energy coming off of that record. And I find it fascinating too that like a lot of like the Detroit like um hard rock bands and Motown like were really into that record. And then you listen to it and you're like, Oh, that makes a ton mm-hmm. of sense. Like it's mm-hmm. all that kind of energy coming off of it. Uh amazing also i want to talk about that vinyl pressing because i just realized that the album's only like a half hour long right and there's a split uh cut on now that i'm not going to be able to remember the name of the song that's split cut uh on the middle of it but they didn't really need to do that if they just edited the record better <laughs> like because it's only a half hour long like you could fit 15 15 on each side so they could have made it fit but they just split the song in half on the original vinyl which I find Weird. really horrible, but um, hmm. radio stations was so popular. They would just play the, uh, the whole side, mm. go to commercial break, and then come back and play the next whole side, wow. which I find fascinating mm. as well. Yeah, and that was 62. So like right, huh? in most, like in the general consciousness, that album in a way like doesn't even have like his hit songs. They are no, hit like- songs, but like, to today's listeners, they would be like, I don't recognize any of these songs. And they were all just still huge songs at the time. Like, that shows how long and varied his career was that, like, he basically made a greatest hits live album and, like, it contains none of his greatest songs. Right. And, like, I was kind of saying before, like, I didn't get James Brown. That's why I didn't really understand it. Because mm. if you listen to, like, a song like Super Bad, yeah. and it's so hard and aggressive and funky and monotonous. And it's, I think it's only, like, one or two notes, or mm. it might not even change notes. And then you listen to Live at the Apollo, and you're like, what? This sounds like Ray Charles, the soul singer. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, it's very confusing. So, like, when I met in the middle at, like, 1968's Live at the Apollo Volume 2, it, he still plays Think, mm-hmm. but it's in a different style. And But you can see where he's moving his music. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it kind of gave me a good, like, go-between. And, and You know what I mean? Because it is some extreme stuff. Yeah. 
Mike, throw out another song you like. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go. My first one was kind of like, you know, 70s. I'm going to kind of come back and join you, Jeffrey. And I'm going to go. Oh, that's my number two as well. Yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, I'm no, sorry. I no. don't need to steal it from you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, killer, killer song, of course, because I mean, you know, it's one of, it's the same, it's like this, you know, it's, it's up there, um, with I Got You, you know what I mean? It's probably one of the most iconic James yeah. Brown songs. Uh, first song to feature Jimmy Nolan on guitar. Great. I was going to say that could, that guitar, um, that guitar break in there is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Like, come on, dude. And then, like, the, the, the boom. At the end, like, it's like, you know, I mean, it's credited, you know, I'm, I'm reading off of a certain type of a page, but like, and it makes sense, but it's like, it's credited off, like, for being like one of, considered to be like one of like the first, like the earliest, you know, funk recordings too, man. And like, it's just like you were saying, Jeff, like the on the one where it's like the hit and then you get the, the you know yeah. the, like the horns or you hit and then you get the guitar line and you hit you, you know what i mean like it's got that it's got i don't know for me it's up there with basically just it's it's one of the greatest james brown songs of all time if not one of the greatest like argue you know what i mean one of the greatest like pop songs of all time i mean i'm pretty sure that that was featured on the soundtrack for the movie mrs doubtfire you know and what i mean face like, off. <laughs> oh and face off yeah thank you Jeff coming in to save the day. The and John Travolta says, Papa's got a brand new bag. Ow! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I was just gonna, I was, I wanted to point out too, that like, that phrase, Papa's got a brand new bag, is such a great contribute, like, to pop culture mm. too, you know what I mean? It's like so stylish and on point and like fresh at that point and iconic now. Also, this yeah. is a song where, so, like Luke said, he has songs where he's just talking about dances this is like James Brown's version of the Wilson Pickett land of a thousand dances. Cause the whole song is about like, you can do the twist, do the mashed potato just like this. You can do the jingling and like, he's just, it's kind of like how today's TikTok yeah. hip hop songs are where you're just like, you know, you're singing a song and you just want people to dance and like put in 50 different moves throughout the song. Um, and man, yeah. that Jimmy Nolan, it's his first recording. The sound, not only the break where he does the da, 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 but the just the two and four, the spank on that guitar, like how cutting and, and bright and like it has a little bit of reverb and sounds like there's some slapback delay on it. Like that is, in my opinion, like the best rhythm guitar sound of all time is just that that one. Bank, 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 bank. Like it just is so, so killer. Yeah. And the, the thought of like using the guitar in percussive manner right. is is the also the um the James Brown breakthrough, you know what I mean? So like that's the other yep. another thing too, if we're talking about like the guitar players in the band playing like a new kind of style and playing in a percussive way when they're not really switching like notes a ton, but they're playing like very interesting and like long, like maybe double picking for a long time rhythmically. Yep. It's so uh uh, I love that. Like even just the obviously that break, that just being able to play that instead of like a drum roll, I think was like a big wake up call to a lot of musicians. Yeah, and this is this is another one yeah. with Melvin Parker on drums. So the I got you and Papa's got a brand new bag, both recorded in the same year. And because um, a lot of people when they think about James Brown, they think of two other drummers, uh, Jabo Starks and Clyde Stubblefield, who did the like funky drummer and Cold Sweat and hot pants and all those kind of <laughs> funkier songs later on 
But like Hot the picks. Melvin Parker, like those, I got you and Papa's got a brand new bag. It's just like the way he plays the drums to the arrangement of the song is just so smart. It's, I would completely agree. It's like nothing ever feels like it's out of place. Everything always feels perfectly in time. And like even to that, that song, like being like a rhythmic breakthrough too, uh, I feel like this one is like a, also with I Feel Good. I feel like these two songs like really mirror each other in a lot of ways. And they're just the, the breakthroughs of, of rhythm on here are so, I don't know. I, I think they stand out to like anything in the period. Nothing really sounds like those recordings. A quick sidebar, if you were if your pay was literally getting docked every time you made a mistake on stage, you'd probably play everything that's the And he's say he's saying it on the mic. That's five. <laughs> like, yeah. Right, right. So I'm just yeah. saying, like, you know, if that's if that's what's happening, like in real time, you're getting your pay docked, you're like, Yeah, I'm oh yep, I'm on it's the one. It's, it's like it's it's something we talked about the dancing being influential on people like Michael Jackson. But, like, musically, I think he was a big influence on Michael Jackson in the way of, like, he showed on Sex Machine that he can play piano. Like, he does those cool bluesy piano stuff. But James Brown was a dude who just had a ton of musical ideas and would just say them to the players. He'd be like, I'm thinking something like this for the bass. And he would hum something. And he would, think, he would go, I'm thinking something like this for the horns. And he would just kind of like, da-da-da, da-da-da. Like, and they would just have to pick up and harmonize off of it. But he was this idea guy. He wasn't really a proficient musician as far as playing stuff, but he had such a mind for like, how is the machine of the band, all these parts going to go together and lock in and complement each other. And then this will stand out on this beat. And then you'll hear the bass really strong on this beat because nothing else is going there. And then it's just like perfect arrangement planning. Yeah, he was, I definitely feel now that we're talking about James Brown, say in comparison to, uh, like Otis Redding, how we were talking about last week about stacks, how Otis would do a similar thing, right? Where he would sing the horn parts to the horn players that he wanted them to play and stuff like that. So you ca- you see kind of a similar thought pattern here with James Brown, but James Brown not only, I think, start, he clearly started before Otis Redding and, you know, I mean, he lived longer. But it's it's the same sort of brilliant kind of musical mind tendencies that you're seeing with both of them where they like, it's almost like, their brains are bursting with these brilliant musical ideas and they just need to just like get them out, but they don't have the complete means. So they just, they just call on their rhythm section. They call on their horn section to deliver everything that they want. And like, so effective, kinda, man, James Brown, I, especially. I see him a lot. Like, um, like miles Davis too. Cause like, like, well, <laughs> that, 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 like super strict, but always had like the best band at the moment. Yeah. Um, the top players yeah. for like their field of what they were doing. And on top of that, like, um, the, even like the you know the innovation, but like, like with the um, with the way like he would take a song, and like maybe if it didn't even work the first time, he would like try it, but then he would like maybe just take the baseline from that song it didn't do well and use it again, and then another time it would be more effective because he had learned from what didn't work on the right. last time. And people wouldn't even really notice because he would do it so innovatively and fresh. Like, uh, uh, Cold Sweat's bass line is mm-hmm. reused like 10 to, uh, times, mm-hmm. but like, you, it doesn't matter because he just kept making it work in different ways and um, really working to his whatever strengths he had as a, um, a ranger. And I think that was like great too. Very hip hop too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
can we speak of like the uh just a weird like point real fast have any of you heard his david bowie fame ripoff from like 75 right after fame came out he takes the album i'm a i'm the original disco man (laughs) i've heard it i i haven't gone back to listen to it but i've heard it uh just i i just want to shout that out everyone check it out uh james brown totally rips off bowie and lennon it's hilarious because it's the exact same song and james brown's like nah it's different he's like vanilla ice with it he's like it's different a little bit changed yeah (laughs) the original disco man uh well, Jeff, since yeah. I since I took took your second pick, what's what what's next on the docket for you? Oh, Just, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, because we like we said earlier, we all have oh, yeah. way more than. Say, um, so another one we can talk know, about so. is from his era with uh, Bootsy Collins and Catfish Collins and the new band when when all the the band from the late '60s all quit. Uh, he had this new band and the songs super bad, especially the one where it's parts one, two, and three, and it's like nine and a half minutes long. And there's a mono version on Spotify. You should check out that version. Um, This is, I think this was the first song that Catfish and Bootsy played on. And this is the one where it sounds completely different than the Jimmy Nolan guitar, which is that spanky cutting guitar. And this is the very like hollow dead sounding funk guitar that then became like super popular for the next five to 10 years. Um, but just, I love this guitar line. I love the groove. Cause this is 1970. This is when James Brown is like, no, we're doing two bar grooves, two bar grooves. And then like every two minutes we'll hit the bridge for, for 20 seconds. And then we'll go back to the groove. And, uh, I just love super bad. I love the guitar part on this, like the sound that catfish con sound is so incredible. And I love the Robert McCullough, uh, sax solo, which is like, basically sounds like he has like a kazoo and he's playing it with his ass <laughs> like it's so it's, it's just like it's he, dude, wild he says so he's like play me some train brother and then robert color i mean this is basically how it sounds dude like it sounds like he's just humming nonsense <laughs> it's so good i have a and you I just have a dance great story. while you listen to this ridiculous stupid sounding <laughs> thing but it's like that's what he wanted man i don't know Dude, I I, um, I hated it when, when I we decided we were going to do. Hated it, right? Well, let me tell you, I, I <laughs> when we decided we were going to do James Brown, you know, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go hard, especially because like I was, you know, picking up my bass more, listening to more Bootsy stuff, doing that. So I'm like, I'm going to go hard in like the early '70s original James. Like that's going to be my, like I really want to hone into that. I really feel a connection to that. I put on Superbad. Dude, I went I, I went to the gas station and as I'm like pulling out of the gas station, you know, I had you know, I had my windows kind of down a little bit and there were like people kind of around, you know, I was in Norwich, so like there were people around. And he just kicks into that sax solo and I didn't know that it was coming because it was kind of like whatever. And all of a sudden it's and and everybody you could I just see people who are like walking on the sidewalk all kind of like turn their heads and they all just look at me like me. And like the little Ford Fiesta, just like what? Oh my god! And like seeing me, kind of like, oh my god, this is jarring. It's and so terrifying. muted. It's, it's weird because it's not even loud. It's so low in the mix. It's like, it's like he basically yeah. was like probably in the back of the band, and James Brown was like, "No, nah, man, I like what you do." That, and he was like, "I'm fucking embarrassing myself. This sounds so bad." Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't even know what was going through his mind when he was playing that. Can I? Can I tell yeah. you, like, when he counts that song off, and like. The the just like the you can hear I don't know the squeak if it, the squeak the bass the, drum 
I don't know if it's the bass drum yeah. or the hi-hat, but something's yeah. squeaking so loud in that mix. Yep. But it yeah. sounds so, like, you almost feel, because you hear that squeak for me, I don't know if that is, but it makes me feel, like, the tenseness of the room. Yeah. And when he gets that solo, it almost sounds like, <laughs> like James Brown literally said to him in that moment, and they never had a conversation before, like, you would just hear, like, everyone's kind of on their toes from the count. And when he yells, blow me some train, that dude probably never had blown, like, train in his life. <laughs> and was just like, yeah. well, this is what I think that might be. And James Brown's like, yeah, blow me train. He's like, oh, okay. Like, that, it's just the whole thing sounds so panicked. But, like, on top of it, James Brown is saying, I got it. I got it. And, like, almost like maybe he's telling the band, like, it's okay. Aye. Like, we're going to get through this cake. Yeah. And, um. I just love also the confidence of him saying I'm super bad. Like, like jump I got back and kiss myself. Yeah, yeah. I want to jump back and kiss myself. Come on, one of the best dude. I love like, I love ever the said. braggadocious. Yeah. Like, I got soul and I'm super bad, and I'm gonna drive it mm-hmm. home to you monotonously for yeah. like seven to ten minutes. <laughs> like, yeah. I love it, and yeah. I love like the power of it in that moment in time for him to be like, "No, this is who I am." I'm like. You know, I'm a man of, you know, like, he's got, like, that hard funks, hard sex, like, thing he's selling, like, <laughs> pre, pre-Rick pre yeah. James. Like, this is, like, where, you know what I mean? That This is that, like, really, like, hard sexualized R&B stuff starts coming into, mm-hmm. and he's, like, telling everybody he's got solely super bad, he wants to kiss himself, and, like, that, that kind of yeah. stuff. It's The whole vibe of the song is great. And, like, as I said to how hectic the bottom is, James Brown is so cool. Mm and collected on top of it which is why i think that mm-hmm. song works so well because it's like fire panic band underneath and then james brown just saying like i got it i got it it works so well for me i love real qu- as a sidebar and an honorable mention since we're on this album as the topic anyway this album goes super bad it's parts one two and three as one track nine minutes and 16 seconds of that super bad delicious madness and then it goes into let it be me which is like this ballady, singy kind of thing. So like, you know, and then even at the end, to, you know, give a nod to our man Isaac Hayes that we talked about more recently, by the time I get to Phoenix, closes the album out. So like, this is, uh, you know, just to, just to speak to even that, Jeff, like, I think that's a great pick. And even just as an album in general, I think it's a great, a great, great James Brown. I just... I mean, it's a live album. And it's got some. I think it's got some it's overdubs, like studio overdubs, audience yeah. noises, and stuff like that. But real like, live. I mean, he did that. He did. Yeah, he did that all the time. Anyway, so. But yeah, great pick, man. Great pick, Luke. Um, how about you? Okay, uh, I'm gonna pick a song that I like because this is a side of James Brown I really like. I like when he plays sideman with the JBs and like leads the JBs. So I'm gonna go with the classic, uh, JB single, um, doing it to death. Uh, I love the James Brown cow talk. Could we do it again? Yeah, yeah. I just love how stompy and funky is. Like the dump, 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 dump. James Brown's playing organ on it. Um, the lyric is literally only "We're gonna have a funky time. We're gonna take you higher." Um, and then I, James Brown is calling out people, and he's like, "Hey, Fred! Hey, Fred! Play me a solo." There's a great trombone solo by Fred Weasley on there. Um, that is probably like my favorite Fred solo ever. It's so funky and that groove is so monotonous and never changes. Um, and Fred's just blowing a great trombone, like solo jazz style over a funk beat. 
in which they had like perfected at this point, like the JBs were playing like jazz solos over the hard funk. Um, uh, I love that. And then I love James Brown calling people out and he's like, Oh, you didn't want, you, uh, you don't want people to know you're in here, huh? You didn't want people to know you're in the studio with James Brown. And he's like, you, you don't play me this, you play me this. And he's like, you know, calling people out and, uh, you can, for me, you could always pretty much tell like they were having a great time in the studio and it's all that one giant take. There's two parts of it. Um, it's on the album. Uh, is the album called Doing It to Death? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, I highly recommend that whole album. I love it. It's one of my favorite pieces of James Brown works. But um, yeah, Doing It to Death is a great um, example of James Brown showing the talent of his band stepping out after the Bootsy Collins era. Uh, and Catfish era, and really bringing uh, the Fred Weasley great era after that that made some of the like the best James Brown recordings. So like it wasn't all dried up after like Bootsy left because he they still made some of the greatest music at that point. And I think this is one of the high points. Yeah, What's I mean up, he he's you know you could talk about the James Brown backing band, and I have a list here of like you know there's five dudes on every instrument who are just incredible. But Fred Wesley is like this secret weapon that that trombone sound is so dynamite. And he went on to be in Parliament Funkadelic in the mid seventies for their like classic albums, the mothership connection and the next couple of albums after that. But uh, Fred Wesley acting as the James Brown uh, band, like music director during his time in the JBs. And just like, he's a crazy soloist, but also that band, that version of the JBs, like from 72, like after Bootsy and Catfish left from like, so like 71 to 74 is like just a tight unit that, like you said, doing it to death is a full album. We're credited to the JBs, but James Brown, I think he just dug the band so much that he was like, no, man, I'll just play as a sideman on this album. Cause like these, these songs all kick ass anyway. Cause they had, they had an album before this too. I forget what that was called, but that album is also really good. Uh, I think that one's called More Peace. Right, yeah, or yeah, yeah something like that, yeah. Um, but yeah, these oh, are, yeah. like, yeah. every side production that James Brown did, like, he played on, was involved and produced. And I think this was, like, a way, too, of, like, giving his band leader a little bit of dough in the business right. so they could have their own album. And not for nothing, but Doing It to Death was a number one R&B hit, million seller. So... Like, not only was James Brown super successful, but his backing band was super successful. Um, this is probably my favorite version of the JBs as well. Like, um, like the Bootsy era gets really, like, you know, high praise for good reason. But I really love uh, the Fred-led band afterwards because I think their recordings, uh, they're more prolific of, like, of there's more to listen to and i think they're like more evenly across like the, at least the solo jb's records there's a lot of like great funk stuff on there with like um hard leaning jazz tendencies at times so it really like toots my horn on a couple levels and literally got, and figuratively yes and it's got i like he said fred's trombone is like some of the best like trombone soloing you'll ever hear in jazz or funk in any kind of playing so it's just great. And uh, at the time, I, th- I think Maceo uh, steps back into the band at that time, too. Mm-hmm. So I think you get him uh, playing on all the- some of those tracks, too, which is like, it's just some of the tightest horn players and James Brown playing some funky organ. Check out the song Doing It to Death. Um, also, if I'm throwing one more out there for JBs, it's, it's going to be more peas. More peas. Pass the peas. Pop more peas. peas. <laughs> right on. Yeah, and, oh, uh, can, we're can gonna I just do... say one thing while we're talking about that JBs too? 
Bootsy yeah. Collins gets a lot yeah. of credit. Catfish Collins, a lot of credit. But those guys only played with James Brown for about nine months between 1970 and 1971. And uh, the bass player took over after Bootsy left. Fred Thomas was with James Brown for many years. And uh, he plays on that doing the Death album. Oh, you know what? I think Fred Thomas is actually the one that he calls out and he says, uh, oh, you didn't want anyone to know you were in here. Huh? <laughs> like that. I think that's who he's actually calling out in that song. Hmm. But um, check it out. I just love James Brown's spirit on that song, too. He sounds so happy to be yeah. playing with the band. Like, that groove is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and can I say one more thing? It definitely, yes. if you're looking to, like, <laughs> check out where Parliament got their jam, like, from, it's, like, doing it to death is kind of, like, the base of, like, and all those guys went to play with them later. But it's a great jumping point. They They were doing stuff, but, like, that's... You know, they would work that into their kind of stuff, and it was very reminiscent of it. Right on. Well, there we go. The first round. We're gonna take a quick break, uh, and then when we come back, we'll uh, we'll run through a few more, man, and uh, you know, keep it funky. So we're gonna go to the bridge quick, and then we'll be right back. Most of us, i.e., comedians, treat open mics as a necessary evil, but not Silas P. Every week, Silas talks to a veteran of the sights, sounds, and smells of the Philly open mic scene, sharing stories of momentary triumph and lingering failure with enough shit talk sprinkled in to make you listen to hear your name. I'm like 35% sure that I'm in there. So pay attention, hang out in the room, and maybe you'll learn why you got bumped on the launching pod. And we're back. Welcome back. Um, Luke has a fresh drink and we're getting, we're going to get on up here. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to take us, I'm going to take us to the year 1970. Uh, honestly, I, I know I keep talking about this band, man, but like, it was just like, I would say that like, okay, this song, Ain't It Funky, probably is like the drone of James Brown's that gave me the type of anxiety that I can only reference as that one boogie that luke played for me that one time by canned heat that's like 25 30 it's minutes long, hour long after like the Thank first you. okay well there you go and after the first like 25 minutes of this droning boogie i was like dude i'm sorry like you have to take this off like it's giving me anxiety like it's Which not, make it funky just... where it's like yeah okay well it's it start but it starts off and it's like Get it fucking out, and then you get those no, like those horns. You're up. thinking of the tune huh? "Ain't It Funky" now, right? Where it's like, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Make it funky is the one I'm talking about. Yeah. I, oh, I said yeah. make it funky. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's my yeah. My apologies. Then no, it was yeah. I meant to say "Ain't It Funky." I'm sorry, but yeah, that's okay. 1970. Um. I think that's still got Jimmy that's Nolan. That's like the '68 band, I believe. They are also on the popcorn. That's before. Yeah, because it was it was it's technically recorded between '66 and '69, and it's on King. I think this is right before he moves to Polydor. Yeah, this is Pooey um, Ellis and St. Clair Pinckney on saxes, and yeah, yeah those yeah. there's probably Clyde um, or Jabo on drums. There's two great instrumental albums. One of them's um, uh, "Ain't It Funky." Um, and then the other one is the popcorn and it's all the same band and Mike, these recordings are hot and the one the song Mike is talking about has like it's amazing I love it yeah it's just got that like yeah the... 
And it's just like, yeah, dude, it's it's really just seeing a master in his craft with James Brown and like the command over his band, his his sense of rhythm, his sense of timing, you know, all that stuff. Like, it's just it all kind of comes together on this song. And it is. It's so hypnotizing. It's so I like over and over and over and pulsating and it's like this tension i like how this song too is a great choice mike i like this song is also like proto disco in the way that the horn line keeps Mm. coming in like that's so disco before disco if it had like a like on the on the beat instead it would be like i find this song to be incredibly early like proto disco and i love that fact about it too in the horn line over that monotonous like and and not and also to that though if you're thinking this was recorded like 66 to 69 released in 1970 like it it does kind of like relate back to like what you were kind of like to what you were saying earlier too jeff which was like it's like, yeah, he had all these musicians that kind of rotated in and out and in and out, but it's still James Brown. So it's like he just always gets the musicians to do his bidding anyway. You know what I mean? So it's just like, yeah, you have these great musicians that come in and you need to have like, you know, top notch guys in your ensemble at all times. But um, just the way the, the way that James Brown's mind works it's like it. It didn't matter who was sitting in on that band. Like he would have gotten out of them what he wanted to get out of them. Those you know two I mean? instrumental records too are like um, a great like snapshot of like before like the JBs do other instrumental stuff. This is like still that like great sixties like Cold Sweat style beats too. Like um, this album too like goes incredible with that one. James Brown directs and does the popcorn. This all has like funky instrumental jams that James Brown plays on. I love a lot of those cuts. Um, fascinating enough, some of those cuts from those two albums too were recorded after. So that this uh, James Brown say it live in 1968 um, in Dallas when they were done. That was a released record later in the 90s. But after they were done doing that show in 68, they recorded most of those instrumental tracks that go on those two albums after they did a whole concert so they just recorded those albums for nobody in the stadium which i find amazing hmm. Pretty fascinating yeah i didn't even know that yeah crazy a yeah. lot of that is played to an audience of nobody in dallas in 1968 <laughs> <laughs> right on well there you go so there's mine there's mine to kick us back into the uh to our countdown right on so jeffrey um what i'm gonna throw out there is like I'm throwing it out there because it's kind of an, an anomaly in the James Brown uh, songbook, but it's a ballad. It's from 1966, and it's called It's a Man's 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 World. Um, a song Ugh. that was recorded in two takes with like three or four of the members of his touring band at the time, but also a bunch of studio mus- musicians, including possibly my favorite drummer of all time. Bernard Purdy plays the drums on this track, which I didn't know until oh, today, yeah. until researching these songs. Um, but you can hear from that, that crisp hi-hat where it's like, it's so Bernard Purdy. I love the sound. It was like very rare for him to sing with orchestral backing. And the song starts with this big orchestral flourish. And 
I think this is like maybe his best vocals, or I should say my favorite of his vocals ever. It's in a key that's like one of my favorite keys, which is E flat minor. So he does these wailing E flat notes, E flat down to B flats um, on the words like nothing, nothing, or, or at the end where he's singing lost, lost. And it's just, it's searing. It's like crazy how, how cutting and how uh, pained this song sounds. Um, it's a song that I'm also throwing out there too, because like as much as James Brown wanted to keep things funky, like he was a dude born in 1933. So like, and let's just be real. He was a, a man in history. So he was like a huge douche um, a lot of times. <laughs> and like this song, I, I've read the, the Rolling Stone review of this single. It said the lyrics are biblically, shov- biblically chauvinistic. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and it's true, but, but I didn't realize again until today, this song was written by a woman. Betty Jean Newsom, who was a songwriter and a singer and dated James Brown at a time. Um, but she wrote this song from the prism of a woman in the mid sixties who lived in this world that was run by men who wouldn't let women do anything. And so it's this, like, I don't know if you want to say ironic, but it's, it's almost like even more stereotypically masculine and chauvinistic because of that, because it was written by a woman. Um, but I just love that juxtaposition of like these lyrics that are so self-centered and self-righteous and talk about the great things that men have done, but like it would all be all mean nothing without a woman in his life. And yeah, the singing man is just like those high E flats are just ripping. And the way he sings, because like we said earlier, he doesn't have a lot of songs where he sings, sings the entire time. And this is one of those rare ones where he is singing the whole time and it just sounds so great. Is like I as I listened to the song the other day too because it's uh, on one of the the live in Dallas I listened to, I found it to almost be like um, like you're saying it's like that chauvinistic lyric. I almost found it like a um, like an ironic strong cry for like um, the, like a dying of an era, but it like almost reads as ironic, right? But like almost at the same time, you're like just James, but is James Brown like putting that? on it at the same time because it's like he's saying it's a man's world but like it wouldn't but it, like times are changing at that when that song's released too so it reads in a lot of weird ways and that vocal is so powerful it like puts that whole emotion of like um of like love at, but at the same time he's singing about like misogyny a little bit you know what i mean not a little bit but like you know it's it's got that the love yearning in the vocal that's so like uh, heart wrenched and like I love you, but like it's a man's world, like kind of. I'll, I'll just say it's a it's a goddamn shame if Kanye West doesn't cut out that song to make a sick sample someday. Because yeah. those some of those lines that he just rips, they're just like, and even the quieter ones where they're lower in the range, they're just so beautiful. I, I agree. I love the strings on it too. They're so classy. Da-ba, 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 da. and, like, yeah. Yeah, they don't. Easy. They're not like they're they're not syrupy in any bad way. Like, you know what I mean? They're not like, um, they're uh, not starchy. If you want, if I want to say that, I love it's like the closest he got to that James, to that Ray Charles sound. Mm. There is still R and B ballad, but it had the orchestra behind it. Yeah. And I love that you chose the song too. Cause it also shows that like James Brown was like into making you dance, but he also was like such a prolific, like, um, artist at this, like in all forms that he would like still do ballads because 
he was trying to fulfill the ballad market while he was trying to fulfill the pop teen market while he was also doing like uh trying to make like adult contemporary i don't know whatever he was doing he was doing like three styles mm. of music at once like um that like two it that song stands out as like such a high point in the that 68 show because it gets like way funkier later but he does the ballads up front and gives you like um he even does um that's life the frank sinatra song mm. you know which i love <laughs> yeah. too it's just a different different flavor yeah yeah. Yeah, nice choice, choice man i don't even uh, yeah i don't even know why I, I didn't even think of that one you know what i mean i don't know why i, didn't I just that. as a singer man i just like that's that's the singing song for james brown that i think of yeah like all the other stuff is cool yeah. it's great singing but like as far as like singing the story and like the long long notes and stuff yeah like, yeah i love i love that yeah. it sounds like he's like breaking the microphone like he sings so loud like it's just it it has this otherworldly sound like how everything today can be digitally manipulated to sound like however it's just so crazy to think like that was a guy just standing in a room two takes just singing as loud as he could and capturing the magic into that metal can like didn't you i think you sent us uh like a like a chopped up video right didn't you send us like yeah. a messenger where it was him singing that yeah yeah live and yeah. i was just thinking my my yeah. god man like so just like haunting yeah. just you know what i mean Even like, that, yeah. that, like it's so uh, good for him to bring out the string players for like only three songs in his review mm-hmm. show too just showed you the caliber of show he was putting on too because mm-hmm. those strings sound great on those live recordings they don't sound bad at all it's amazing mm-hmm. i love like mm-hmm. just brings out the haunting aspect too like i love when he does a ballad with like a good string sound uh, like I just, in a man's world is probably his best ballad like he ever probably put forth and you believe him you know like that's the that's the quality that james brown has that's so well, like you're... you see him up there he's in like the unitard and he's just like and he's just so sweaty and just like it's so like visceral and like you know what i mean like it's so, like just his performances in general but like especially when he sings a ballad because it's 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 him he's like you know what i mean it's all this pent up looking rage and everything but then he he gets tender he softens and it's an interesting sort of way of being vulnerable in front of uh, and as jeff said too that song was two takes i'm gonna bring it like a bit like weird here but like um like meditation and that practice is all about being in the moment and so uh, most of james brown's recordings are in the moment things and he was big on that. And I think that that uh, strategy for recording music, doesn't matter if it was hard funk or ballad, worked to his favor every time because none of his stuff sounds overworked and it always sounds right in the moment of true, like, this is how I feel about it now. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to ride the wild wave of emotion that's coming over me. And being in the moment in there, like, makes you not overthink things and it comes out in a more natural way and that comes across more humanistic and i think that's a great uh strength that he used in in the studio it's it's also to me very evident that james brown was one of those types of musicians that was always on Mm. that you know what i mean it's like it's like a uh maybe a weird comparison but it's like it's like a stevie ray vaughn right like have you ever seen that Stevie Ray Vaughan video of him like warming up where he comes out in like that leopard print thing and he just looks terrible. He's like got five o'clock shadow and he's like yawning and he kind of like sips on a coffee or something and they're going to go do this sound check and you can see he's like, you know, he's still wiping the crust from his eyes 
and he starts playing, and it's just like every the whole thing just lights on fire. Like I think, I feel like James Brown is that same sort of a spirit, like a soul to his being. Like the dude was just Hardest always working on man, it. show business, my man. Yeah, like that. Yeah, man, and it's and that tenacity that I think was definitely fueled by the fact of one of two things. Um, the ab- the abandonment he felt from his mother, who left when I think he was like four years old, and his crazy like raging alcoholic father, who basically like you said earlier, right, like just beat on him because he like hated him, you know, and that does something to a person, man. It definitely does something to a person, and I think that his hard work ethic and his drive and all that stuff that comes across in the music. I feel like that's where this rooted in, man. Like, not to get too philosophical about it, but like, you know, you kind of have to like see things how they are. And I think that was a major thing that, like, you know, yeah. Him. Uh, yeah. Like so. Mike said too, most um, rock stars have um, a like some kind of uh, hard parental issue. It's like a very common thing that happens, and it's a lot of the most successful people in the music world. Um, if it's like the Beatles or whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter who, there's tons of them. You kind of like go through the list. John let is a couple in the Beatles, you know what I mean? So uh, it's really, it's, yeah. it's very interesting that, you know, that he takes that and just drives with such a hard, you know, propelling forward and never really stops until the mid eighties. He didn't stop till <laughs> Christmas 2006 when he croaked. Oh my God. And also, I don't know if you guys have like read those news articles. People really think he was murdered now, but like, yeah, very weird. It's a big murdered, murdered, really cocaine. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it was a slow, it was a slow murder. It was a thirty year. That was like me and Jeff were talking about George Clinton the other day, and he's just like talking about like. Yeah, you know, one day I woke up and I was like 75 and I'm like, yeah, I guess I better, I, I guess I should stop smoking crack now. <laughs> and you're like, 75-year-old George Clinton's like, yeah, I guess I should quit smoking crack. You're like, how are these people? Uh, what? Man, crazy. life gets wild. Life gets you have another crazy. song, Luke? Cocaine's out. Yeah, I got drug. one more. I'm going to give you yeah. um, one, another one that like, I don't know, I, I kind of you know gave there was a time that was like what got me into James Brown. This is another one that got me really into James Brown. So, um, I first heard this song on the Aerosmith live bootleg album. Um, it's like the official live bootleg one. Um, and this song is Mother Popcorn. And it also helped me understand James Brown because as a rock fan coming into it, you get to hear Aerosmith driving a hard funk beat and uh, Steven Tyler screaming, you gotta have a mother of me, which is like one of my favorite things of all time. But when you get back to the original James Brown one, you hear the greatness of that one. Um, so I'm going to go with Mother Popcorn part one and two it's a amazing an amazing song um i really just like um how it's kind of like cold sweat um but he's also just throwing the popcorn in there because it's a popular dance craze at the time um and i also love how he takes another one of his previous lyrics and adds you gotta have a mother for me popcorn i like how it makes no sense um popcorn (laughs) you gotta have a mother for me popcorn um but I really love it because, like, I see, too, like, the screams where he's like, yeah, um, doing that. Like, and then I, you listen to Aerosmith growing up. I was, like, a more um, got that when I was young instead of the R&B stuff. And you could see why uh, they're shrieking and stuff. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, that's a James Brown thing. Like, you know what I mean? 
or when he's saying like take it to the bridge or take it here like oh that's all his stuff like when Timberland was saying that in that Justin Timberlake song that's all James Brown like that's where it comes from and um that this song is just like um a great relatable James Brown song and I think it works well in a lot of sampling modern contexts and fits in with all that I love it you gotta have a mother popcorn yeah and one of the best dance songs of all time I think also noted James Brown made like four popcorn songs four or five. <laughs> right right like there's an instrumental popcorn, which yeah. is great. There's mother mm-hmm. popcorn. There's another one just called popcorn instrumental extended something, you know. Mm-hmm. Low, yeah, down low down popcorn. I love them all. Of on the same album as mother popcorn. I love all that. And um, <laughs> like I was saying, another record that I got uh, was James Brown and the instrumental popcorn record. And I love how like funky and laid back that is. And that's something that I can listen to. And just like relax. It's just the sound of popcorn popping and James Brown yeah. screaming over it. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me some I butter. find like his band here to be like really like cool and laid back in this kind of 68, 69 period too, where they're kind of like jamming on the funk with the cool horn lines and it's not aggressive yet. Um, and that's why I really, really, really love it. So, um, and because of the air mm. reference. So that's why I'm really throwing out mm. Mother Popcorn today. Yeah. Right on. Do you want to do one more no, round? Because I mean, we I, can. I do whatever have... you want. We can just throw throw out yeah. some compilations or yeah, things to check out too. Some, if you uh, want. We're gonna wrap it up with some final mentions. Then let's do that. Okay. For, yeah. Yeah. Um. I just think just maybe as an album as a whole, an album that I kind of like downloaded on a whim, just because it was you know released in 1972. So I'm like, oh, that's still kind of in the era that I really wanted to kind of focus on. It's the second release on Polydor, so we're getting a little bit further along timeline-wise, I suppose, from where we just were, but um, the song, I mean, the album, there it is. Like, I love that. I love the opening to the album, where it's basically, like, the woman calling, she's like, there it is! Like, it's got this kind of thing. Parts one and two are great, and then it goes into King Heroin, which is, like, such a crazy song, because it's, like, it's this slow sort of brooding instrumental kind of thing. And he's just telling the sort of like poetic tale of basically what heroin will like do to a man, you know, like it'll make you steal. It'll make you do this. It'll make you do that. Like, um, and it's that one or is it? Yeah. And then, because there's public enemy number one, part one and public enemy number one, part two, uh, on the same track. So I, I mean on the same album rather, but, um, it was just a pleasant surprise, kind of a stumble on it to to listen to it. And I just thought, like, it's just cool to hear him kind of do, like, the spoken word thing over, like, that slow kind of brooding. So, you know, King Arrow and, like, that, like, just slow tension building. It's just cool to see that coming hot off the tracks of, like, the 1970s albums, like Sex Machine, like Ain't It Funky, like, stuff like that, where it's kind of this snappy kind of thing happening. He gives you that kind of, there it is, part one and two, which is sort of, like, I feel like for the era in the 70s, you see a lot of those albums have an... Basically, the opening track is, like, the track that's named after the album itself, and it's, like, part one and two. Or parts one, two, three, four. Or, like, something... You know what I mean? It'll give you something like that. Um, So, that's an honorable mention. Album and couple songs for me. Um, It was, like, a happy sort of find. um, And I highly recommend it. Uh, My thing to check out... So, like, if you like a James Brown song... 
just search that song and try to find the version that has the parts one, two, and three on it. You know, like the extended one, the six to 10 minute version of the song is always, in my opinion, a little better because it just lets the funk go on a little longer. But if you're going to check out one yeah. thing by James Brown, I would say check out the compilation. It was put together in the early 90s. It's called 20 All-Time Greatest Hits with an exclamation point. Uh, in my opinion, it's the best greatest hits of all time. Every song is a monster. 20 songs. It covers his whole career from 56 up until I think the most recent song on there would be um, from like 76. It does not contain the number one hit song living in America from 1985, but <laughs> it contains everything through like 1976. So you get 20 years of James Brown, 20 songs. Like I said, if you like a song, look up the longer version because the longer versions always just give you a little bit more. But if you have to, if I had to maybe choose any album to bring out desert Island, maybe I would choose that 20 all time greatest hits. It's a, cause it is a, fucking monster it is a really great album that was like the first um james brown album i ever heard like all together same because it was on the rolling stones original 500 mm-hmm. greatest albums of all time list so when i was scouring the list i was like oh where to start in james brown well i have to listen to james brown he's an important artist i'm gonna start with mm-hmm. that record so that's cool that you shout that one out that's uh, a record i actually uh played today and spun nice um i'm gonna throw out um a last one here and um it's gonna be kind of a, a weird record but um i'm gonna do uh in the jungle groove an album yeah. released in 1986 um so the reason why this album is important is for hip-hop heads out there because mm-hmm. it's the first time that funky drummer was put in its complete nine minute form on a record because funky drummer is one of the most sampled hip-hop uh drum breaks of all time um so basically what they did is they realized that James Brown was getting sampled unmercilessly. But what they ended up doing is they kind of helped it because it was helping James Brown sales anyway. So they put this album together for crate diggers so that they could tear it apart and um, use all the drum breaks on it, especially that of Funky Drummer on side one. Um, so this is like a revival of James Brown's music in the 80s for hip hop heads. It was released in 86. Um and I really, really, really love this record. I think it's it's one of the greatest uh, things he's uh, put out, and I just love it because it's it's that like hip. It's kind of all the hip hop things put on one thing. So it's like if you know about it, you know, and it's a great record to look at. Yeah, and it's stuff all from sixty nine mm. to seventy one. But yeah, they just put it out height of early hip hop. Yeah, and having that nine minute funky drummer on there, yeah. it's like. I, there's so many look up the samples it's like every one of your favorite hip-hop artists used it back in the day yeah. it's amazing so that would be my throw out james brown man yeah. maybe the most nice. influential black artist in the 20th century. i would probably put him up there because if you're thought like uh who yeah. like invented hip-hop it's it's james brown like he invented he put all the tracks there and he was there from the beginning of r&b to like the end of it so I mean, not the end of it, but you know what I'm saying, until the end of his career. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. So I think the moral of the story here is, is. Make it. You know. Make it funky. Make it it funky. Listen to a little James Brown. I'll tell you what, man. I've been listening to James, like, I've been listening to James Brown pretty much this entire week. Just constantly, constantly. And, like, it's made my days better. You know, like, I'm kind of like, I find myself kind of like, 
moving and grooving through everything lately a little bit more, a little bit looser. I mean, I've been going kind of hard on the P-Funk Sex machine. You know, too, but... Yeah, exactly. But yeah, man, like, even in, like, Hot oh, Pants, yeah. where he's, yeah. like, talking about, like, he's talking about, like, he likes his woman in Hot Pants and stuff. It's biblically chauvinistic, <laughs> for sure. Um, but, like, you know, I don't know. There's just something about it, man. It's time and place, especially his 70s stuff. It just feels so hard, 70s and funk. And... Really, if you kind of take what James Brown is doing and then you throw in a little bit of that, like, at the same time-ish, same time-ish, because, I mean, his career is so long, you throw in a little bit of that sort of Jimi Hendrix kind of flavor, a little bit of that Little Richard kind of flavor, and you end up having groups like Parliament and Funkadelic that would end up giving you really, like, the genre, like, the genrefying of funk in that way. I mean, James Brown was definitely doing it, but it's cool to just hear to, to, because that's what I've been doing this week is just listening to a lot of James Brown, but then a lot of early parliament, a lot of early funkadelic Jeff, you and I were talking about good parliament funkadelic albums to listen to as well the other day. Like, and to hear those two kind of as like companion fans and groups, I think a little bit of crossover too. I just think that uh, George Clinton ended up being a better uh, shyster and band leader because he, just took all of James yeah. Brown's best guys and left James Brown high and dry in the mid seventies. So I think that's kind of like the extension of it. That's like, um, it's sanction of all the James Brown band and ideas and players kind of went all- along with George. So he's yeah. the godfather. But, though. but <laughs> again, but that's what I'm saying again, at the end of the day, man, it's the same, it's kind of the same way. Like John Mayall, right? John Mayall would have all these amazing artists come through. And at the end of it, he was just kind of left like, eh, but I mean, you can't really compare John Mayall and James Brown because James Brown is on a completely different level. But I mean, in the in the sort of a narrative sense of being like all these great musicians just kind of always pass through, you know, this kind of like one band and stuff. So, um, but yeah, man, James Brown all day. He's the man. He's the Godfather of Make Soul. Soul brother number one. The hardest working man. Mr. Please, soul please, please one. himself. Mr. Dynamite. Mr. Dynamite. <laughs> Mr. Dynamite. Um, hardest yeah, working James man. Brown, check him out. He is, man. He is, and it's and it shows, you know. So, um, we love him. Rest in peace, James Brown. By the way, make it funk. Rest in fu- rest in funk. Rest in funk. Um. So yeah. Until next time. You can find us all on Instagram. You can find us all on Facebook. You can find us all everywhere. Um. Jeffrey, you have a podcast. What do you love about yes, sir. music? A new episode recently featuring your brother, right. Sean, right? It was a good episode. I listened yeah, to it. Yeah, if you I go really back in it. the back catalog, we have an episode with Mike as my guest, an episode with Luke as my guest, an uh, episode with my sister, my friend Roy, my brother, um, yep, yep. so on and so forth. So check out What Do You Love About Music on Spotify only. Spotify yes. exclusive. Spotify, Spotify exclusive. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, I also have one that's called What Works For You. It has nothing to do with music but is like a self-betterment podcast and everything like that too. So you can find me on Instagram as well with that podcast. So until next time, get in the garage. Cold sweat. Make it funky.